Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we will speak with Kerry Lee Merritt, the author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites, and Slavery in the Antebellum South. This is her first book. She's an independent historian, and we're going to talk about what that means, but she's an independent historian and is always working on a number of projects, including her tweeting, which has become a major force to be reckoned with. So uh, let's welcome Kerry Lee to the show. Uh, Kerry Lee, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Evan. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a pleasure to finally talk to you with all the uh, uh, tweets I've, I've read over the years, and, and you're certainly a force to be reckoned with there. Um, uh, uh, but let's talk. So, you know, one of the reasons I think um, your book is so important is that it's about poor whites. And in talking about slavery, um, we justifiably spend most of our time talking about how it impacted black families and how it drove the larger American story. Um, obviously, African Americans, of course, um, were the primary victims. But Kerry Lee, you know, your book explains the impact that this whole system had on poor whites. Um, it planted so many seeds for how our country's political narrative would play out um, over the last 150 years or so, and certainly continuing on into the future. So uh, first of all, why did we need a book explaining how slavery impacted poor whites? Well, that's a really good question. Um, most people um, did not ever hear about poor whites in textbooks. You know, it's something that's not generally taught in school. And that's because of a very pointed political reason. Um, it's, it's due to the fact that for most of our history, it's been written, history has been written by white men. And most of these men have been white supremacists. And so there was a very real political reason to not tell the story of poor white Southerners, because in telling that story, you're actually showing that that slavery, and, and as you said, I, I no way compare, you know, what happened to black Americans. That's a completely different, different situation than what's happening to these poor whites. But, but I, I argue that slavery was socioeconomically detrimental to a large percentage of white people in the deep south, the area that I look at, the cotton south. And so I, I estimate their numbers to be about a third of the white population there and argue that because slavery was so profitable and such um, you know, an efficient economic system because you're literally just brutalizing and killing people at will, um, there, there actually weren't many jobs available for poor white Southerners who had traditionally worked in agriculture um, and, and you know, raising cotton and raising tobacco. So they were pushed out of these kind of jobs and then they really couldn't compete even as day laborers for any kind of living wages. So you end up having um, a large percentage of the South's white population literally either unemployed or underemployed, just constantly looking for work, constantly looking for food. A lot of these people were on the brink of starvation for you know, at various points in their lives, and especially once once the Civil War comes. Yeah, and we're going to certainly get into a lot of that um, that content and, and that substance. But one of the things I want to ask you is, um, when did you realize this? Um, when did you realize that, that, and at what point in your career um, did you realize, and how did you realize that this was a story that had to be told? Well, I've always been interested in it just from my own background and, and kind of coming from poor whites on one side, at least my, my grandmother was pretty much illiterate. She had to drop out of school at full time in sixth grade to 
pick cotton and to work in cotton mills. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that there was this legacy of, of really bad treatment for poor white Southerners, but I didn't really know where it came from. And in college, I, I started, you know, really researching Southern history and, and antebellum, the antebellum South and Civil War era South and still didn't find much about it. I started studying what they called plain folk who are, you know, mainly yeoman farmers, people that owned land. And I estimate yeoman farmers in the Deep South to be about a third of the population. And then you have the big plantation holders, um, people that owned, you know, at least five, 10 slaves, um, probably, you know, big plantations, most of them yeah, are about a third of, of white Southerners. But so, you know, seeing that they had been completely written out of the narrative, save for um, people like W.E.B. Du Bois and different black scholars who, who really showed their importance um, at this time period, you know, I kind of figured out that they were written out um, of the narrative to promote this lost cause idea, this, this idea of a solid white South, that slavery had always united white Southerners in this, you know, shared idealism, this kind of moonlight and magnolias, plantation, uh, romanticism, you know, that every white Southerner was this uh, valiant, uh, courageous, uh, you know, confederate uh soldier and just yeah, and, all of this was just lies i found out yeah you know and that kind of leads me to to the, the next question i was going to ask which is um i think one of the things we have to do you know you talked about yeoman um farmers and things like that one of the things i think we should do in talking about the south um is to explain and define the terms because whites in the south um at that time certainly could not be painted with a broad brush and really no one should ever be painting people with a broad brush because the world is filled with all kinds of nuance um that can get papered over by the headlines but um you know whites in the south at that time were not painted with a broad brush and um there's certainly a myth that they were and you know slaveholders were also few and far between but they were also rich and powerful the master classes as you call them so explain the divide in the south and some of the terms that we might hear during this discussion right so poor whites are generally taken to be people that don't own any slaves and don't own any land and and i argue that for the vast majority of them um, they are cyclically poor, their children are never able to rise out of poverty, and it, it you know, by the late 1850s, um, you know, being born into poverty as a white Southerner, you're, you're not going to leave that station in life. Now, yeomen are, are you know, a step above that. They're, they're basically middle class, what we know as a middle class. They own land, um, they might own an enslaved person or two, but they wouldn't, you know, have have extensive slave holdings. Um, they would have some some intermixture with plant the planter class on on social levels or even at familial levels. Um, and they tended to vote with the planter class because these are the, you know, the yeomen are the class of people that really think that maybe one day they could enter the ranks of the slaveholders. Mm -hmm. I argue that poor whites do not. They know they're that poor. They know that the, the cost of an enslaved person is so high, they'll never be able to enter that class. Sure. And then you have the, the planter class, which just, you know, they're completely rich. They, they own everything basically in a county. They own all the jobs. They own all the businesses. Um, you know, they run everything at a political and economic level. Uh, certainly, we can already hear the echoes of today and uh, in, in all of that. But um, explain, uh, let's just stick in the past for now. Explain how slavery was sold to poor whites at the time. Um, 
I guess all controversial policies, and of course it was controversial, um, need a, a good salesman or woman. Um, did slaveholders need their support to keep this system going? And um, you know, what did the master class tell those who didn't own slaves about how society, the way it was structured, would benefit them? Absolutely. They, they knew that they needed non-slaveholder support, um, you know, just to keep the system going, essentially, because we still don't really understand, I think, the way that the Old South was essentially just a police state and not just for enslaved people and mm. free blacks, but also for, for poor whites, for anybody that had any kind of interaction with black people. And I argue that poor whites definitely did. There was an entire underground economy where enslaved people traded usually goods that they raised on plantations, usually food, um, corn, uh, hogs, meat, to poor white people who would you know, trade either cash or um, alcohol was a, was a really big thing um, to enslaved people. And so they had this whole entire underground economy that the planters and even the yeoman class are constantly policing and trying to keep people segregated. And that just doesn't happen. And so, um, you know, not only do they try to keep poor whites uneducated about what's going on at a broader level on uh, about slavery, because they basically keep them illiterate and uneducated and they keep any kind of abolitionist materials or anything that talks about the plight of poor whites and how slavery detrimentally impacts their life. They keep that completely out of the South. These planters are going through the mail. Um, they're, you know, hanging, tarring and feathering, jailing, anybody that comes into the region um, trying to either tr teach black people how to read or trying to teach poor whites um, about abolition or what's going on in, in within the, the broader world. And then when they see that this kind of stuff isn't working, by the time that they think civil war and secession is a real possibility, they actually switch to a tactic of just trying to terrify poor whites into becoming these rabid racists. Um, they, I say that you can see the uh, the genesis of Jim Crow actually in this era in the 1850s. Because so this is read, just, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, when you read these newspaper reports, it's just the most incendiary, horrible, just racist, racist rhetoric where they're, they're saying that, you know, black men are going to come in and rape the wives and, and daughters of all these poor whites and that rich men, you know, can flee the area. But poor whites are going to be stuck in the South and made to be the slaves of these black people. And so it's, I mean, the, the language is straight out of, you know, something you'd see in Jim Crow. One of the things that's striking to those of us who have not read these archives and have not poured through these, you know, these newspaper clippings is this is a constant system. Uh, this is a, a, in order to keep this system going, there has to be a constant level of terror and of control and of fear that was impacting both African-American slaves and also poor whites. Absolutely. I mean, again, we can't really conceptualize, I think, today, um, the kind of total system involved in that, you know, I, I argue that the violence was from everywhere. It was, you know, solidified in law and legitimized in law. And, and so it could be through the courts and through the very extensive jail and penitentiary system they had in the South. Or it could just be by, you know, private individual slaveholders who, regardless of statutes, basically had free reign to murder, maim, rape, enslaved, or free black people, and even poor white women, you know, to a certain extent. Um, 
and you know it, it was just a total control um if if things didn't work out in the courts they way the way that uh, the master class wanted they just take somebody out and lynch them so they they had free reign of doing whatever they wanted to to keep the system going to keep themselves safe from any kind of riot or rebellion either from black people or from what they really feared was uh, i argue a biracial revolt of poor whites enslaved and free blacks banding together. Hmm. Um, well, let's get into the book uh, a little. Um, you begin with the discussion of uh, what is one of the, truly the, the best names in all of uh, maybe literature or what have you, uh, Hinton Helper. You begin with the discussion of Hinton Helper. Um, and uh, who doesn't love a good alliteration? Um, but but uh, he's one of the few anti-slavery advocates in the South. And he writes a book in the 1850s um, basically warning non-slaveholders that they just can't compete with free labor. Um, and so uh, what was the reaction to Hinton's work? And just explain his theory about what poor whites are starting um, to realize, or at least be told that, hey, you're out here in the labor market looking at these, you know, at these plantations that have hundreds of, of essentially free uh, employees. Um, so right, explain his theory and then also the reaction to it. Right, so Hen Helper writes one of the most important books um, probably in the entire 19th century, but immediately when it comes out, it is banned throughout the South. Almost every single Southern state bans it. In some states, if you're even carrying the book, you could be, you could be hanged um, for that offense. It was so, you know, they were so fearful of these ideas really making their way. So books were banned in the United States. Let's be clear. They have been. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Always. Um, right, right. always. Especially, I mean, the South perfected this model. Um, the South, as soon as abolitionism really started coming up in the 1830s, the South had an iron fist in regards to uh, censorship. And, um, and so they, they had all these statutes out that, you know, what you could, could do to punish a person with this book. But so Hinton Helper is not actually arguing that slavery should be gone because he's any sort of, um, you know, a, a race sympathizer or that he cares about what happens to the enslaved people themselves. He doesn't, he's a rabid racist. Um, but what he's worried about is what slavery is doing to white people and particularly poor white people. And he, he, he takes statistics and he lays out chapter by chapter in a very convincing matter um, uh, what, what slavery is doing to their lives, not only from a, a labor point of view and economic point of view, but what it does to them politically, what it does to them um, from an educational level so that their children are never educated, that they're illiterate and that they thus remain stuck in poverty their entire lives. And the it's book trapping is, you in other words. Oh, absolutely. And, and, it, and it really, you know, becomes a big deal in the North and it's sensationalized and, and Helper becomes kind of a big star. Do we know um, how many copies of it are sold uh, based either regionally or total? I can't remember right now off the top of my head, but I mean, it was, it was one of the best sellers throughout the United okay. States. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it was up there with Beecher Stowe, you know, as, as well known as something like that. Uh, so, um, the, there's anger that starts to grow. And, and one of the um, roots of the anger um, you argue in the book, Masterless Men, um, is that at one point land that had been owned by natives, Native Americans, becomes too expensive for regular people to own. 
Right. So what you see um, by really the 1840s and especially into the 1850s is that poor whites are virtually shut out of buying any kind of land in the South. And there are several reasons for this. And part of part of the reason is because they start um, the Species Circular Act requires that land be purchased with silver or gold and some kind of hardback currency. Um, and so, you know, poor whites can't get loans for any of this. And, and the people that they're going to get loans from are slaveholders. Well, slaveholders have bought up the entire area. Um, they've overfarmed everything in the older states like South Carolina and Georgia. And have basically just, you know, they keep on pushing west to these more fertile lands that they haven't yet ruined. Um, like uh, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas. So, so they are essentially taking over the entire South and Southwest and creating, you know, almost a caste system between land landed and landless people. The um, I want to take a quick pause here, um, uh, not of our recording, but but of, of of just our discussion here, and let's just talk about how many people we're talking about here, because it strikes me it's it's not exactly clear to those of us who haven't. Um, gone into these archives. Um, we know there were about, at the time of the Civil War, about 4 million slaves, give or take. How many poor whites are we talking about? Well, so the typical numbers at the time of the Civil War say there are about 9 million white Southerners. Um, now, I think the number is higher because I, I always say that you know poor people in the United States, especially in the 1800s, are way undercounted. Mm -hmm. um, and we're never going to be able to know how undercounted they were. But I mean, you think about bureaucracy, people going around taking a census in the 1850s, they're going to miss, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. But I just argue that if you look at the structure of, of the South, the white South, and you say there are about 9 million, you know, I'd say there are about 3 million in each of the, the three categories, poor mm -hmm. white, you know, middle class and yeoman, and then, you know, uh, elite planters. Uh, so that, that's good to know because it just helps kind of just put pictures in our head of what we're talking about here. But the, the, the next question I have is, um, as the, these folks start getting more and more angry, does that anger contribute to secession? Um, or um, were these kind of two parallel tracks that were running um, and that there was just sort of a coincidence? Um, so, you know, I, I guess we often think about the way the Revolutionary War is sold is that, you know, so is taught at least is that there was this kind of rising tide of discontent. Was this rising tide of discontent among poor whites a factor in secession? I argue that it absolutely was because they essentially open up a three front war on slavery because, you know, planters and and their allies are already protecting and defending slavery against the enslaved themselves and against um, Northern and Western abolitionists. And with the rise of the Republican Party in the, in the mid-1850s, they become super fearful that you know, the Republicans are going to make their, um, 
their campaigns known to poor whites within the region because then they're essentially operating on a three front battleground, you know, against the poor whites as well. Because the, you think about the, the ideals of the Republican Party, they would have been incredibly attractive to poor whites because they are, you know, offering homestead acts, they're offering land to poor white men in the West, they're essentially for free. They're offering, you know, they're the pro labor party, they're, they're the working men's party, they're saying that everyone, no matter what education, deserves to be paid well for, you know, any kind of labor. All labor should be honored. So Lincoln really beca does become a villain, um, and they have to make him a villain in order to keep this system going. Right, and they even see Lincoln as, you know, one of their own, right? Their own poor whites. Lincoln was a poor white. Ah, interesting. You know, yeah. back in right. Kentucky before, before they moved to Illinois, Lincoln was a poor white in Kentucky, and his father actually decided to move to Illinois because he did not want to compete with enslaved labor anymore. Right. He couldn't make enough money competing against brutalized enslaved black people. Yeah, Lincoln, uh, it, it, there's always a chapter in every Lincoln book uh, uh, that uh, he, what was it? He, he came from the short, simple annals of the poor, right? That's how he described his, uh, his, his background. Um, Absolutely. Uh, uh, so um, now that there's this kind of, um, this antagonism towards Republicanism um, and to the party of, of Lincoln, um, how does, and I get the sense from reading your book, but, 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 but explain a little, you know, uh, explain to us just um, as this war develops, how do poor whites continue to view this war and the Confederacy? Do they continue to support the war um, or do they start to realize this is something that um, is a little bit more nuanced than they were at once uh, sold? So I found that the vast majority of poor whites did not support secession or the Confederacy at all. They had a lot of anger towards the upper class elites. They saw, um, they, they knew that they were treated differently than all other whites in society. They had kind of a, you know, a classist chip on their shoulder. Um, they, they really hated the upper classes and, and did not want to go fight and die in a war um, to protect the property of these, you know, these rich elites. And so they didn't actually go out and sign up in, in, in mass to go fight for the Confederacy um, right after secession. The, the vast majority of people who signed up were either planters and sons of planters or um, people who made their money off of slavery somehow. Um, and so you don't see massive amounts of poor whites going um, you know, to the battlefields of the Civil War until um, the Conscription Act. Once they're conscripted, you know, this is the time period where the idea of a rich man's war and a poor man's fight really comes to be. Everybody is saying this, they're, they're really upset. And within a year or two, certainly by 1864, you've got between one half and two thirds of the Confederate Army completely gone, just deserted, gone back home, to help you know, their, their wives and families and children stay alive because most of their families were starving through all of this, right? I mean, it, it was bad on many fronts. Um, the, the planters were supposed to stop planting cotton and actually produce food for the people in the Confederacy, which didn't happen. Um, so there are many, many class issues going on during the war itself that drive these poor men 
for white men back home. You know, and this is just such a good example as to why Southern history is so important because so much of our Civil War um, narrative is built around Northern, uh, you know, historians and what was happening on the Union side. But whoever heard, you know, about, uh, uh, about unless you're a professional, you know, who, who's heard about um, uh, desertions to the Confederacy? So that, that's just an important point, and I'm glad um, that you made it. Um, so uh, after the Civil War, um, then explain a couple things. First of all, what happens to um, freed slaves? And then what happens to poor whites? Sort of who gets what? Describe how this pie is all broken up. Right. So obviously, freed slaves in the United States are outside of Haiti. The only freed people who get political rights um, within the 14th and 15th amendments so soon after emancipation. But as Eric Foner and W.B. Du Bois and so many people have argued, that's about all they get, right? That's about all they get. They have a few years where they are in power politically and there's a, as, as Du Bois famously puts it, um, you know, the slave went free, stood briefly in the sun and then turned again towards slavery. And I, I love that line because it, it explains Reconstruction and early Reconstruction so well because there were a few years of, of hope um, and, and possibility and then just a devolution of expectations as, as in some ways uh, Black Americans were really returned to, to different forms of slavery. Now so I argue- Oh, go ahead, yeah. What, what, what do poor whites get, but go ahead. Right, yeah. so I argue that, that in a lot of ways, emancipation frees poor whites in many important ways, um, some of the same ways as, as, as Black Americans, but in some ways it goes a lot farther than that. Um, not only are they finally competing in a free labor society, but um, you know, they become the favored laborers. They become um, the, the people that are getting the treasure jobs in factories or in um, the new burgeoning um, industries in the South. They also get education for the first time because before the Civil War, there's no system of public, free public education in the Deep South, in the Cotton South. So actually, it, it is the Freedmen's Bureau and the bringing of, uh, of black schools, you know, the, the making of black schools in the South that actually brings um, universal education to white people in the South. Public education meant um, public education. And, yeah. Right, right, absolutely. And so then, thirdly, at the same time that the government is saying we cannot give uh, free people any kind of reparations, we cannot give them land, you know, they're not going to get their 40 acres and a mule, well, the Homestead Acts are going on in the West. And even though there's a, a Southern Homestead Act um, for parts of the kind of Southwest. And it, it essentially gives land to, you know, millions of not only white Americans, but of white immigrants. At the same time that we're denying land to African Americans who have worked for, for free, have been brutalized and worked for free for years and years and generations and generations. We're not giving them anything. We're giving land essentially to free throughout the entire Western United States, basically land the size of both California and Texas. We gave away to free to white people at that exact same time. So when um, do people start to, um, to put all this this kind of story together. Um, I guess explain some of the historiography. How have poor whites been studied since that time? Um, and just give a couple of examples, one or two examples of the ways those theories have changed. 
So the most important uh, probably reason that poor whites have been written out of the narrative to a large extent was with the Dunning School, which was around the turn of the century in the early 1900s, out of William Dunning out of Columbia and all of his students that really started writing uh, the history of reconstruction. And they, they, you know, these were the people that coined the term, you know, really went back to how bad the Southern scalawags were and the Northern carpetbaggers and how they, they, they came up with this um, idea that, that these are the people that ruined the South, you know, that ruined reconstruction when in reality, um, it was the, the upper class elites getting back every, you know, all the power and all the money and all the, all the land immediately and basically continuing um, versions of the antebellum South just in different ways. But so the Dunning School and the historians, the racist historians there really, really ruined um, Southern history for even into, you know, going into today, a lot of our textbooks are still based on this kind of Dunning idea of history. Now, of course, the antidote to that would have been W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, which was published in uh, 35, 1935. And he, this was, I still say it's the most important book probably on American history ever written. It is magisterial, it is beautiful. It shows the interplay of race and class over and over again um, in ways that completely explain um, how things were done in the South and how everything was, was messed up because power never really changes hands. It's still always in the hands of the white elite who can then use racism to divide and conquer. Um, you don't just, uh, Carrie Lee, you don't just write about the South, South, excuse me, you don't uh, just write about the South, you live there, you went to school there. Um, what resonates today um, that has its roots um, I mean, we might need another podcast for this, but boil it down. Uh, what resonates today and that has its roots in the era that we're we're talking about? I, I think everything that we're dealing with today, everything that we're dealing with in Trump's America has its roots in this the mid nineteenth century South and mid nineteenth century America. We are still still dealing with um, white supremacy. We are still dealing with the fact that the vast majority of resources in this country, the vast majority of capital in this country hasn't really changed hands for more than a century, that the same people that were rich in the antebellum South and that were rich in the Gilded Age North and West are still the main capital holders, that throughout most of rural America, we've got nothing but monopsony where people have no, no uh, choice of where to work and who to work for and at what wages. Um, we have a system that is completely devoid of taking care of people at a basic human level that you know, doesn't care if you live or die, essentially. That's not going to give you health care. That's not going to give you uh, any kind of government help. Um, you know, all of this, this kind of uh, American exceptionalism, if you will, you know, the fact that we are one of the richest countries in the world and that we still have this horrible horrible standard of living for so many of our poor people. Uh, is, it's related to this era. What is the status today of poor whites and poor blacks as they relate to one another in the South? I think, 
for me, it's really hopeful in a lot of ways um, because this younger generation that just continues to inspire me and and give me cause for hope. And I'm not necessarily a very hopeful person. Um, <laughs> and and I think that I think they've got something. And I think you know I, I always argue that Southern history there are ebbs and flows and and times particularly after um, recessions and depressions and really bad economic times, there's a chance for a multiracial coalition for blacks and whites and native Americans and, and, you know, everybody to come together and, and actually fight on a political level um, for shared economic and shared labor reasons for shared class reasons. And I think that um, that's back where we are right now is that we're at that precipice where um, people from all races can come together and, and fight for rights as poor and working class people. And, and we're seeing that. Uh, so before, this has just been a phenomenal discussion, by the way, and, and thank you so much for grounding so much of what we're seeing today in, in real live history. But before we go, um, I mentioned at the beginning that you are an independent historian. And so we, you know, we hear about professors and we hear about popular writers, um, people who work for, for, for a trade company, for a, uh, a company that basically signs them to sell books. Um, names like David McCullough and Ron Chernow come to mind when you talk about popular historians or popular writers. Um, what does it mean to be an independent historian? So you don't work for a school. Um, well, I guess I'm asking, uh, what do you do all day and what projects are you working on? Um, well, so I, I basically am a writer, essentially, and a speaker. And I go before COVID, I would go around and give a lot of speeches on different political topics or different historical topics. And um, I try to write, you know, shorter pieces that connect history to the present day for uh, more popular audiences. I'm, I'm, I'm essentially trying to get history out to the general public. And I'm, I'm working on two different book topics right now. And hopefully we'll have something out in the next year or two, a new book. Um, that'll be a trade press book. So um, Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Are you allowed to say at all what it's about? Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here. If you can't, I mean, just say it, no. It is, it is about racism in America and, okay. and how to overcome racism and, and kind of a path forward to the left. Well, we certainly uh, hope you would consider joining us um, to talk about that when you have a chance. And um, uh, um, and I don't want to make you say yes now, but <laughs> we would oh, love I'll to have you. I'll say yes now. No, this is okay. great. Great, good. Um, Carrie Lee Merritt, author of Masterless Men, Poor Whites, and Slavery in the Antebellum South. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Evan. And we'll certainly check out uh, that book and also her social media pages. She is more than active on Twitter at Carrie Lee merit uh, phenomenal twitter feed love reading it see it every day um, and thank you for listening to axel bank reports history and today conversations with america's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now be sure to check us out on twitter and instagram at axel bank history we update those with clips from the show with guest announcements and book recommendations we'll see you next time thanks 